Welcome to Wider Wealth, where we learn how to generate value, not just profit, from the people who have actually done it and explore what wealth really means. Today, I'm talking to Jimmy Chen, the founder of Propel, about whether an app can put more food on the table for the 44 million Americans who receive food stamps. Tell me what Fresh EBT does. That's the app that you make and who uses it. Sure. So in the United States, there's a program called Food Stamps that helps over 44 million Americans put food on the table when they're low income or have financial trouble. The benefit is distributed on an EBT card, which looks like a debit card. But when we talk to EBT cardholders, they tell us that it's really challenging for them to check their balance to know how much they have left on the card so that they can go grocery shopping. So we build a free smartphone app that's called Fresh EBT that helps people who have these EBT cards to not only check their balances, but also to set a budget to save money on groceries and to find jobs. So how do you help people save money on groceries? Well, we help people save money on groceries by publishing grocery coupons inside the app. And so we work with grocery retailers and grocery brands across the country to publish coupons to help people save a dollar on a roll of paper towels or 50 cents on you know a head of lettuce. And for our users, this is especially important because they're often living in a situation where having a very limited amount of purchasing power means being able to, to squeeze an extra dollar or two dollars out of their grocery shopping trip is a really big deal. So how many users do you have right now? And tell me a bit about the profile of your user population. Well, we launched the app about two and a half years ago and have seen it grown throughout the United States fairly rapidly. We now have more than a million people who use it each month. The average person opens the app nine times per month and the app continues to grow each month. You know, the average user for us is a young mother. So we've got uh, about 85% of our users are female and about 87% have a child at home. You know, when we talk to our users, it really, it, it tends to resonate with the person who is kind of organizing the finances and doing the grocery shopping for that household. And in our conversations, we've tended to find that in households that have multiple adults, oftentimes it's the mother or the woman who's kind of the CFO of the household. Makes sense. How did Fresh EBT and the company that makes it, Propel, actually start? I was a product manager at Facebook in San Francisco, where I used to run the Facebook groups team. And in 2014, I left Facebook looking to take the tools of Silicon Valley and use them to fight poverty. And was that something that was happening at the time? I mean, no, I mean, and, and it still doesn't really. I think, you know, one of the realizations that I had working at Facebook is that people solve the problems that they understand. And that there were thousands of, of, of very smart people at Facebook working on a set of problems that they themselves understood extremely well, which is really around social networking and how to make, you know, a site or a product like Facebook more valuable to, to its users. And there are low income Americans and people of all kind of socioeconomic backgrounds who use platforms like Facebook. But by and large, it's pretty hard for a big company like Facebook to really focus in on their specific needs and how they use the platform. So one of the things that I got excited about was, you know, in, in, in 2014 and even more now in 2018, hardware is increasingly not the problem. You know, about 70 to 75 percent of even the lowest income quartile of the American population has access to a smartphone that can use the Internet. And so if these folks have a phone in their hands, what is the software that's running on the phone that actually meets their direct needs? So you wanted to apply the techniques that were used in Silicon Valley companies like Facebook to poverty, but that's like a very wide scope. How did you end up focusing on food stamps? You know, in the summer of 2014, I moved to Brooklyn to join the Robin Hood Foundation for the Blue Ridge Labs program, which, as you well know, because that's where you and I met, is a fantastic program that helps new entrepreneurs take these challenges around poverty and break them down into how do you prototype a real solution that can help real people. 
And so over the course of that summer, I spent a lot of time learning about the food stamp program, learning about what it was like to apply for and use food stamp benefits, and just spending a lot of time talking to low-income Americans about their experiences navigating these sorts of programs. So it was quite a big change for you to go from being a product manager at Facebook to starting your own company in a sort of new field. Like what was your personal motivation for that? Where did that come from? There are a couple of pieces to this. The first is kind of what I've already said about how I think the tech industry can do more about how, you know, poverty is this massive problem in the United States that is attracting lots of public dollars and has lots of foundations and lots of nonprofits working on it, but is largely ignored by the tech sector, which is a sector that has lots of innovation, lots of, you know, increasing capital and, and, you know, increasingly more and more attention. And I think that the tech industry has the tools and has the ability to step in and be more effective in the fight against poverty, in large part because these days, low-income Americans have smartphones. So it's a platform where you can reach people. On a more personal level, you know, I grew up in a loving and supportive household that also several years had trouble putting food on the table. And I think that's not so different than how most families go through financial fluctuations over the course of their lifespans. You know, we certainly experienced that when I was young. And was fortunate to go to Stanford on a full scholarship so I can study computer science and cognitive science. But I think, you know, what Propel kind of represents for me personally is the joining of kind of my personal background and the problems that I care the most about because I saw my parents go through these struggles when I was young with the professional skills that I gained at, at, at places like Stanford and Facebook and looking to really make those meet. So you started off trying to make a business out of enrolling people in the food stamp program. So why did that change along the way? And why have you changed now to your current business model? Sure. So through the Blue Ridge Labs program, you know, one of the first things that we identified was I went to the food stamp office. It's in Brooklyn. It's about six blocks away from the Blue Ridge Labs office. So it's a pretty quick walk away. And we tried to apply for food stamps ourselves to get a sense of what it was like to apply. And when you walk into the food stamp office, you'll see hundreds of people all waiting in line and they're waiting to see a human social worker and fill out a paper form. And most people are passing the time and have a smartphone in their hands. So in a snapshot, that was sort of the opportunity that, as I said before, it wasn't a hardware problem. It was just a matter of making the software work for those folks. So we built a piece of software that helped people to more easily enroll in food stamp benefits by making it easier for them to fill out the original information, to submit their supporting documents, and to just navigate the process. We had a moderate amount of success with this, rolled it out in a few states, had a few hundred people sign up using this app, and we're getting lots of positive feedback from those folks. But there are a few reasons why we ended up shifting away from that as a core thing that we did. The first is that scale was fundamentally really difficult. And that's because of a more technical type of issue. In the United States, the food stamp program is run state by state. And so although there is one kind of national food stamp program that defines the policy, each of the 50 states is responsible for implementing their own version of the program. And so for us to scale throughout the country, which was always the ambition for us, that you know we were going to have to build basically 50 different versions of the software and that each of them was going to have to be quite different from the other to maintain each of the state programs. The second reason that I think, you know, we did this for about a year and a half and then realized that it was probably just not the right way to go was, you know, we'd spent that year and a half trying to build a for-profit company doing this model. And I think we ran into just a lot of challenges of how do you actually build a viable for-profit model on top of this. And, and uh, we frankly just never hit on anything. You know, we tried things like selling it to the government per state contracts. We tried things like trying to sell it to nonprofits on a SaaS model. 
we had tried to sell it to grocery stores, actually, with the idea that actually grocery stores would stand to gain a lot more revenue if they could get people who qualified for food stamps to enroll in food stamps. And so, you know, we were trying to sell the app to grocery stores, which is when I think we hit upon really the third big reason why we shifted away which is just talking to people who are trying to spend their food stamps in grocery stores and realizing that getting enrolled in benefits is by no means the end of reaching financial health. And that just signing up for food stamps was really just the first step on a much longer journey of actually how do you get back on your feet financially? And that there are just more Americans who are in the framework of having already enrolled in food stamps and now trying to use their benefits and trying to put food on the table through that, that that also is, frankly, a much larger problem for a lot of people. And so that's where we've shifted our attention to. So, Jimmy, I know you have a lot of data on how your users actually spend their food stamp budget. And you also did some research in conjunction with an academic institution on budgeting. So can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, it's really important for us to not just have qualitative feedback that our app is working and useful, but also to measure what the impact might be on our users We did a study with Harvard last year to take a look at how people spent their food stamp benefits prior to using Fresh EBT and then how their spending habits change once they start using the app. And what we found is that people who use Fresh EBT get the equivalent of an extra day per month of food stamp benefits. And this is a $70 billion program. And so being able to add an extra day per month across the entire user base of the 44 million people who are using the program is, we think, quite meaningful. When we talk to our users qualitatively, what we hear is that it's much easier to set a budget and think about how to spend your benefits down throughout the entire month when you have an app like Fresh EBT that lets you manage your benefits in kind of a modern way through software. And I think that makes sense. It's hard to set a budget if you don't know how much you have left on your card in the first place. So have you changed anything in the app itself in terms of how you show people how much they have left to enable them to budget better? We have. There are kind of a handful of features that contribute to our users being able to set a budget and really see that day per month of additional benefits. One of those is the idea that we show a weekly budget in the app. So food stamp benefits are distributed once per month. And, you know, similar to folks who get paid via paycheck once per month, I think there are oftentimes it can be difficult to think about how you stretch that particular windfall throughout the entire month. And so, you know, one of the concepts that we tested and piloted was this idea that we could show you at the top of the app, not just the amount that you have per month, but that you have per week. And that's really simple. All we do is take the monthly budget and divide it by four. But by seeing a smaller number at the top of the page, I think it really helps our users think about chunking up their grocery shopping trips in weekly spurts instead of, you know, here's the $300 that I can spend at once. And this is something that's potentially useful for policymakers as well, right? So the people who are actually designing the benefit program. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think one of the things that we hope to do is is if we can really experimentally produce these results about here are ways that we can make, you know, the consumer experience of the food stamp program more efficient. These are the types of things that can be reflected in policy someday. Are there any other insights about your user population that you think would be useful beyond the the app itself to policymakers, for example? Well, you know, we talk to policymakers all the time about, you know, sort of what the future of the program might look like and how a company like ours might be able to help. It's a particularly interesting situation because we are a private company that is working on kind of the user experience and the social impact of 
a government funded program. And so one of the things that we've been talking to policymakers about at a high level is just the role that third party products like Fresh EBT and the things that we build can have on the program. And how can we set up the environment so that new innovation for companies like ours can enter the system, especially software companies have this role to play in actually fighting poverty and making programs like food stamps more efficient? How do we set up an ecosystem, especially through the public sector that allows those companies to really have success in doing that? So since you are probably one of the pioneers in this area of fighting poverty via technology and in a for-profit company, what do you think that ecosystem should look like? like what's the role for for-profit companies? What's the role for government entities? What's the go role for nonprofits? I think the lines are blurring. And I think that traditionally you look at you know low-income Americans, people that are in real financial trouble and Those are folks that are served by these government programs and that are served by charities. What I'm excited by is this opportunity for the tech industry and for for-profits in general to pull their weight and to be able to really contribute their strengths and assets to solving these big social problems. What does that look like long-term and what is the right mash? I think it really is blurring the lines between these where like the tools that companies that are traditionally for-profits can create, can have some role in influencing policy, can be used by nonprofits, and that these three sectors don't need to be as distinct as they previously have been. Well, as you touched on there, you've also said that you want to create change within the tech industry itself so that more companies like Propel can come out of the tech industry. So can you tell me a bit more about that and how you're tackling that? Well, we are a venture-funded for-profit company. And to be honest, there are not very many other food stamp software companies that have received venture capital funding. And I think that... No, you're probably pretty unique there. Yeah, I think I think that's that's something that is a little different about what we do. I think that, you know, the, let, let's just like be transparent and, and, and put our cards on the table. The main reason why is because people have the question of how do you actually make money from this population, right? And how do you build a for-profit business that's actually sustainable in the long term here? I think that in Silicon Valley and in the tech world more broadly, I think people tend to have a lack of imagination until someone steps out and proves that something's true. You'd like see this time and again with companies that are successful in Silicon Valley, right? Companies that that really go out and define their categories are ones that are changing the rules of what people thought was possible before. So you have an app like Airbnb that that people you know maybe had doubted in 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 the early days, but that that has now come on and become sort of a category leader that has created this whole category of kind of what the sharing economy might look like. And I think you know at Propel, one of the ways that I talk about what success means for us is for us to create kind of To just be the example of a type of company that actually can be successful financially while also achieving its social mission. And that we would love to create the environment where people are thinking about what it means to build Propel for X, where people are, are, are looking at the model that we've pioneered and trying to apply that to a variety of other social problems. So touching on the venture capital, actually, you had quite a lot of trouble raising money exactly because you are a pioneering company with a user population that's very unusual in the tech world and so on. So can you tell me a bit about the funding you raised and your journey to get there? Yeah, you know, we're really excited about the investors that we have on board at the company. So we raised a seed round of $4 million last year that was led by Andreessen Horowitz and our other major investors included the Omidyar network. One of the things that I'm particularly proud about for this fundraising round is, is really, I think it, it reflects our DNA as a company that we are able to bring on this kind of top tier consumer 
tech investor. So Andreessen Horowitz invests in a variety of kind of high growth companies. It's not really considered a social impact investor because it's really looking for the high returns that you would get from the top tier Silicon Valley software companies. We were able to get them in the same round as the Omidyar network, which is to me, one of the best social impact investors out there in terms of having really high standards of both financial returns and kind of social impact returns and just being really rigorous about the space. And so having both of those in the same round investing in us, I think was a real validation that we are building exactly what I'm talking about here, which is a high growth consumer software business that can be evaluated just like any other for-profit company, but that really does have a social mission at its core. To your point, the road for us to get there wasn't maybe as straightforward. And I think that's okay. I think lots of entrepreneurs have winding roads towards raising capital. For us in particular, I think it's just challenging to build a very new type of business. And I think that there were times, especially in the early days of fundraising, where I walk into a room and I'm pitching that we're building a food stamp software company. And I think the conversation's over before it even starts, really. And so I think it required two things for us to get to where we are now. The first is a set of investors that do really get it. And I think that that the folks that we have on board really are special in that regard, that they really do understand why this is both a meaningful for-profit opportunity and a really meaningful social impact opportunity. And then second, to have traction. That's sort of one of the major things that changed here is that you know we were able to go out and fundraise and already showed that we had a product in market that was being used by millions of people and having a real impact on their lives. And the opportunities is, is way closer than it may seem. You have said in the past, though, that the relationship between for-profit companies and low-income populations has often been a, a bit predatory. Like, how do you want to change that? And have companies like yours changed that perception from your user population and maybe from the wider population? You know, for us, it's really about having a business model that perfectly aligns with the type of social impact that we're trying to create. And I think that that is maybe easier said than done. Certainly in the early days of Propel, we had some trouble coming up with a business model that would make sense and that would align our social impact with the way that we actually make money. What we do now at Propel is because we have an app that's used by more than a million people throughout the country as a trusted platform to manage their EBT benefits, we also gain the ability to recommend them a variety of other products and services. And so in this world, you know, those products and services are quite unique. They often tend to be things like, here's a government service that, that you could probably qualify for. Here's a nonprofit close by that's advertising a service that hasn't filled its capacity yet. We also work directly with grocery retailers and brands to, to do grocery coupons, and we're paid for those. We work directly with employers to help our users find work, and we're often paid by the employer for each application that's sent in. So those are the ways that we make money now. And importantly, that's aligned with the type of impact we're trying to create, which is to help low-income Americans to get back on their feet. So if we can partner with companies that are doing that and get paid by them as a marketing channel, I think that's a win-win for us. The reason why this can be so challenging is that I think there are, are lots of companies that see social impact as sort of the second order thing that they do. So I, I think the, the more traditional model of this is like build a successful company and then to donate like a percentage off to charity. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's very much a good thing to have happen in the world. But I think we're aspiring to build sort of a different model where you can't decouple the revenue from the social impact and you can't have one without the other. And the reason for that is that, you know, when times get tough, there's going to be the inevitable conversation of like, should we stop, you know, giving our 1% of revenue off to charity? And I think in our case, we want the answer to be that like, that's a question that never comes up because we've already built a model where those two are so deeply linked. You've said in general, in the long term, you are an anti-poverty company and you want to take people further along this journey from 
signing up for food stamps, budgeting with food stamps to getting back on their feet financially. So can you tell me a bit about your ambitions for the future? Yeah, you know, we really focus on the food stamp program now because it's a really popular program used by 44 million Americans and it helps people put food on the table, which is a very fundamental thing. But as a company, you know, we see our ambition as much broader than just one program. And it's really about helping families in the United States to get back on their feet. It's that, you know, most families will experience a financial shock at some point throughout their lives. And that that's what the social safety net is for, is, is that it aims to help people in their times of need so that they can recover financially. And we think there's an opportunity to make that safety net here in the United States work much better. Our ambition for the long term is really to make it so that when people fall on financial hard times, that they're able to find a safety net that is modern and effective and respectful, and that is able to get them back to financial health faster. You're now one of the largest tech platforms for low-income Americans, over a million users. And you've said that you would like Propel to become a voice for your users in the future because they tend to be left out of a lot of these conversations. So can you tell me a bit about that? Well, you know, the primary way that we want to have an impact on the world is by providing our users a product of value. So connecting them to other services or us building the services ourselves that have an impact on their lives. But I think a secondary way that we want to help our users is that there are often lots of public conversations about poverty that often don't include the voices of those who are dealing with those challenges on a day-to-day basis. And so what would it look like for us to really help elevate the voices of our users in that national conversation? We're still early in this process. We started doing this by asking our users for testimonials about things like, what does the food stamp program mean to you? And what is your experience using the food stamp program? We capture those testimonials, and then we publish them in forms like our blog or forms like Twitter, in kind of the attempt to to allow our users to talk about what this means to them. And I think it's, it's an important voice that shouldn't be missing from the policy conversations about what happens to social safety net programs. Definitely. In the four years you've been in business, what are the broader changes you have seen in this nascent field of tech products for low-income users? You know, I think in the past four years, the field has grown. I think that we see a variety of companies, especially in the financial services sector, but in a few other sectors as well, that are starting to get much more traction serving low to middle income Americans. And that's really exciting for me because I think that shows that our hypothesis that it is possible to build a for-profit business that serves low income Americans is sort of clearly true because lots of other companies are kind of making progress in that realm. I think there's still a long ways to go. And I think a lot of the the arguments that I'm making here about how the for-profit profit, nonprofit, and government sectors can blur their lines and that there are ways that for-profit companies can serve the lowest income segment without being predatory. I think those are still somewhat controversial in most circles, but I think that it's maybe less controversial than it was four years ago. So I think that's an exciting way for the industry to grow. If there's anybody out there who is inspired by listening to this to either get involved in a company like yours or to start their own company, it's quite a unique type of company, as you say, because your primary mission is very linked to your revenue stream, but it, your primary mission is still social change. So when you look for people to hire for your company, like what do you look for? You know, we really look for three things when we try to hire people for our company. The first is that we, as a company that is building software for low-income Americans, one of the biggest challenges that we consistently have throughout the history of the company is really understanding who we're building for. And so the best way that we can do that, the absolute best way, is to hire people from the community who have personal experience with challenges around poverty. 
And that doesn't necessarily mean that you have had to be on food stamps at some point recently to understand. But I think our, you know, we've spoken to a variety of folks who really have a deep personal experience that helps them to understand what our users are looking for and how our business might grow. That's different from just reading a book, that there's something kind of more visceral that I think provides a certain type of perspective. And so that's one thing that, that we tend to look for. You know, it's not a strong requirement in the sense that we don't need every single employee at the company to have been on food stamps themselves. But it is important that we have people who can really understand really deeply that experience because each employee is helping us build the future of the product. In addition to kind of that experience, the other types of things that we look for are people who are technically very sound. So we are a software company and even our non-technical folks who aren't writing code on a daily basis have to kind of understand kind of the process of building software and understand that, that we are a software company at core. And then finally, for us, it's, it's really about scrappiness. You know, we are still a small company. And I think the types of people who succeed in our environment today are the ones who understand that our job descriptions aren't set in stone and that often things change on a day-to-day basis. There are tasks that are come up that are not really in anyone's job description and that, you know, to be successful here and to help us move the company forward really means doing kind of a wide variety of tasks. Does your mission actually help you compete for talent with the likes of your former employer, Facebook? You know, I certainly think so. We hire people that are excited about our mission. And that's something that I think is really crucial for us because, to be honest, if you wanted to, to work at a place that would pay you a higher salary, there are lots of other options in a good to a, you know, a small startup like ours. And so we, we sort of have to compete on the fact that our mission is quite different. And the type of work that you do at Propel is quite different than the work you would do at a company like Facebook. And I think that, that you know, for a certain segment of people, that's really exciting. I think in the future, as our company grows, we certainly have the ambition to be a large software company that is employing you know, thousands of people. And when we get to that stage, one of the things that I want to create as our employment brand is really to be the best place in the country for people who are techies with a conscience to come work. So since not everybody can come and work for Propel, if you are a techie with a conscience out there, somebody with technical skills, like what's the first thing they should do to try and explore that? What's the one piece of advice you would give people starting out? Well, I think there are lots of great resources online to read, uh, many of them linked through places like Twitter, to take a look at what are the types of social problems that you're interested in? How do you learn more about those? So in the civic tech space in particular, there are a number of kind of strong voices out there talking about, you know, the role of civic tech, especially in a post-Trump world of what civic tech can be and how do we make these government services a lot more efficient. Folks like Code for America publish really great things about this. Folks like Nava have really strong statements about this. And so I think that's sort of one way to get started. I think another is, you know, there are lots of great organizations out there that that are looking for either for volunteers or for full-time employees that I think share the same type of mission as we do. So perhaps the best example is the Blue Ridge Labs Fellowship, which is how I started Propel about four years ago, uh, recruits a new fellowship class each year. And so although Kira and I were in the first fellowship class in 2014, they're now on their fourth class and they'll also be recruiting their fifth class soon. And so I think if the types of, of principles that I'm talking about are exciting to you, I, I would encourage you to take a look at Blue Ridge Labs as an opportunity to really follow that same kind of path. So thank you very much, Jimmy. And please join me next time for a wider wealth, how to generate value, not just profit. 